what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Is it adhering to certain moral principles as part of a religion? Is it being part of a community group that agrees upon a certain form of spirituality? Is it a particular branch of politics or policies that govern how we make decisions or make money? Is it just affirming that somewhere, somehow, this figure, this rabbi, this ancient teacher existed? Or could it be something deeper, more relational and communal, more involved and more invested? And if that's true, maybe there are things that we need to reconstruct to understand more about what it means to believe and follow Jesus with our whole hearts, bodies, and minds. Why so many words when I can say it in one sentence, and in a sentence very appropriate as a Jew? Honor your master, Jesus Christ, not only in words and songs, but rather foremost in your deeds. Albert Einstein. Good works are simply fruit falling off a tree. Frank Viola. The cure to every disaster is humanity in the world. Namat Khan. God's presence is a position of face-to-face -face intimacy, fellowship, and favor. Suzanne Whitlock. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John the Apostle. Greetings. Welcome, everyone. My name is Quincy, and I'm pleased to be with you today. Um, we're week three of Reconstructing Jesus, which is our series uh, that we're into now and talking about this guy. If you've, you've been around us for any period of time, you know that we talk about this guy a lot. He's kind of a big deal. Um, if you're new to us, we say welcome to you. Uh, we're glad that you're here. If you're new to our church or even new to just understanding and what it is to be a follower of Jesus, we say welcome. And we're, we're, uh, we're, we're glad that you're checking us out. And for those that have been around for a little while, welcome to you too. We're glad that you're here. But there's a tendency uh, when we get into a series like this of reconstructing Jesus we can almost go into kind of an autopilot mode where we say, okay, yeah, I know this, basics, 101, this the remedial talk of Jesus, okay, yeah, been there, bought the t-shirt, done that, okay, thank you. Uh, wake me up when we get into something a little more uh, substantial. We have those conversations, those that have been in the church for a while, they say, yeah, okay, uh, this stuff is kind of milk stuff, but we wanna get into the, 
into the meat. Right? We want to get our, dig our teeth in and, and, and start chewing on some things. But the, the further that I go in journey into my own personal spiritual walk, what I'm discovering is, is that meat, that chewy stuff, the stuff that really gets you going, is not um, more complex doctrines or uh, great insightful uh, things to ponder or to, uh, to argue. But the meat actually is the, an apprehension and a revelation of who Jesus is. That's the meat. That's actually the point. So early on in my journey, maybe you're something similar to me, is that you, you, you say a prayer so that you don't uh, burn eternally in hell. And, uh, and then you just kind of like hope for the best. And then when things get kind of rough in your spiritual walk, you, you every once in a while as you're driving down, you check your rear view mirror and you see Jesus there in the rear view and he smiles and gives you the thumbs up and says, you're doing great, keep going. And you look, you say, okay, Jesus, yeah, I got this. And then you keep going until you find another bumpy patch of the road. But what I'm, what I'm realizing is that's such a small piece of what this uh, faith journey is all about. It's not about just a reassert, uh, reassuring uh, reminder that Jesus is there with you or that you said a prayer a long time ago. It's even more than him uh, being your co-pilot. You've seen the bumper stickers, I'm sure. Jesus is my co-pilot. And that he sits shotgun in your, in your journey where he guides and helps you with your decisions in life. But Jesus himself is the destination. He's the end of the road. He's where we're headed in our journey of faith. That instead of our rear view mirror and we see him kind of getting smaller and smaller, he's actually something as we become more aware of him and become more uh, uh, able to apprehend, he reveals himself in a way that becomes completely life-changing. And we have the gift, we have the privilege to be able to journey this way, shoulder to shoulder, and be transformed in that process of moving closer to the one we call Lord, the one we call Jesus. Sometimes uh, I also think about us in the church that have been in for quite a long time, is that we, we treat Jesus almost like the employees or the board members of the Kentucky Fried Chicken treat Colonel Sanders. And what I mean by that is, is he, he's an old guy that died a long time ago that had a great recipe for success, had some great ideas, but now we, he's more or less a logo or a kind of a mascot that we point to and we say, that's our guy, that's our brand, so to speak. But he's so much more than that, I love fried chicken. <laughs> but this is not that. This is not that. Because my friends, uh, my family, uh, church, Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. And Jesus is Lord. Now, here in this very moment. Last week, or two weeks ago when we started this series, Jimmy left us with the question, who is Jesus to you? Is he, is he Lord or is he legend? 
And I've been, I've been wrestling with that question uh, for the last couple of weeks. And what areas of my life is he just, I want to keep f- as far away uh, from, from how I really live as possible? And how much of him is truly Lord? And then last week we had the chance to hear the greatest sermon ever told. So I'm sorry, this will not be that. But Jimmy uh, and had a number of readers up and just read the Sermon on the Mount, verse after verse after verse after verse, and truth bomb after truth bomb hit us one after another. And I just, I, I'm thankful for that. And this morning we're going to ask the question, what did Jesus do? So in uh, 20 minutes or less, we're going to just kind of surmise that. So, so spoiler alert, uh, this will be lacking. I'm not going to touch on everything that Jesus accomplished in his time in ministry. What we read in scripture is actually, it's a lot. As John says, if, if everything were written down, there wouldn't be enough books to hold it. But, but we find that in just a three-year period, Jesus had his ministry. With the exception of a couple chapters at the beginning of the book of Matthew and a couple chapters in the beginning of the book of Luke, there's really not much. We've got three years of ministry of Jesus. And the question comes, what did Jesus do? Well, until he was 30, he really didn't do much of anything. Didn't do much of anything until his, his baptism. And I think that this is, this is on purpose. The writers are helping us to see that this is a man that grew up in an obscure place, a boring town, and did monotonous work with his father, just learning the craft of being a, a good carpenter. And for the next three years, Jesus is teaching, he's performing miracles, he's infuriating the religious leaders and amassing a large crowd of people that just wanted to be close to him. They just wanted to be near him because there was something about this man. I love the way that uh, author and pastor Tim Chester, he poses this question. He says, how would you complete the sentence? The son of man came. Just think, how would you complete that sentence? The son of man came. I heard somebody say something. What'd you say? To save us? Yeah, it's good. The term son of man is introduced in the Old Testament uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born by the prophet Daniel. And when he's talking about this idea of the son of man, he's talking about this Messiah figure that would come on the clouds of heaven with a host of angel armies ready to overthrow the oppressors and bring peace and liberation to the, to the children of Israel. The son of man coming in a blaze of glory to free the captives. The son of man is a kind of bold and dramatic. It's apocalyptic. It's spectacular. It's, it's big. So we say, how did the son of man come? How did he come? To die on a cross? Yeah, that's true. He did that. Preaching and teaching. Performing miracles? This is such an an important question, and how we answer it actually can form the way in which we want to go. We want to be like Jesus. If he's Lord in our life, we we want to be like him. We want to go like him. So how do we go? Is that moving for political change? Is it proselytizing by preaching on the street corner? 
Well, what does Jesus do? The New Testament is interesting. There are three instances where that sentence gets completed. The Son of Man came. And some of it may surprise us. The first reference I'll mention is in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Someone said it right off the bat. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if we think the Son of Man came to do this, in my imagination, I think of the great rescue plan of heaven where where God uh, sends his Son, who's been ready for a battle, sitting at his right hand, and sends him down to like Navy, Steel, Navy SEAL style, come down and, and uh, kick down a door and shoot a bad guy and, and, and rescue, uh, rescue the people who are in captive. It's like if you, if you watch any of the Marvel movies, which I, people know that I, I love, and any rescue mission has to do with fighting aliens or destroying some kind of building. And you imagine Jesus just like, yes, it's, it's, it's rescue time, it's time to save the day. And we love this and we say yes and amen. We want him to come and do what he does. But Jesus comes a little bit different. He talks about coming to save, to, to seek and to save the lost. And when we hear Jesus talking about the lost, he's talking about a missing coin. He's talking about a, a, a feeble little lost sheep that's on its own or a wayward son that's disrespected his father and spent his inheritance and now comes humbly back to him and the father says, my son who is dead is now alive. Jesus is starting to subvert this idea that we have of what the son of man came to do. The second reference it's from Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. Now, wait a minute. We're starting to see that subversion happen of our expectations of what the Son of Man came to do and who he is. This is the all-powerful one, the one with all the sway, all the authority. And he comes to his footstool. The scripture says the earth is his footstool comes down and to do what? Not to be served, but instead to serve. And we read the full context of this in, uh, in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Thirty-five says, then James and John, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And I love the response from Jesus. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I was baptized with? And their response, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These disciples had a kingdom in mind that would have great power. And the closer that they could somehow get to Jesus, then they would somehow feel as though that power would be uh, transferred to them. They, they, they want that power by association. But Jesus says, no, you don't know what you're asking. But greatness actually comes in a different way. The greatness comes in a way that might not make sense to what you're expecting. In our, in our home, we have a, a birthday tradition that we do every year. Uh, I've got two, uh, two kids, and every year for the, uh, during the birthday, we bring out the cake and we sing happy birthday, like everybody does, you clap. And we have two birthday songs, I'm just saying. The second one is awesome, maybe I'll share it sometime, but we have two birthday songs we sing. And after the song, then we do kind of like a, a blessing, right? Like a, an opportunity to just see, uh, say what we, we've seen in our kids from the year previous, to say a blessing, to pray for them. But the other piece that we do is we, uh, we share uh, their names, their first and their middle name, the significance of the name, what was happening in my wife and I's life when we picked those names, and... Um, just gives them an opportunity to know a little bit about like who they are and, and what was happening when they were born. So my son, his middle name is King, K-I-N-G, which is the audacity, I know, <laughs> the audacity. His name is King. And every year when I'm retelling the story of wow, how we got this name, uh, it's an interesting one. I won't tell you the long one, but part of it is because it was around, it was like late 2000s or so, and I'm not much of a political guy. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch Fox News, anything else. But something was happening in, in the U.S. where Obama was, uh, was coming into, um, into uh, possibility of presidency. And it captivated my imagination. Like, wow, this is incredible. This is happening. In my lifetime, I didn't think we would see something like this happen. And regardless of how you feel about the politics or anything else that happened, in that moment, it was something historical happening, and I was drawn into it. And what it did, it brought my mind to, I wonder what uh, Dr. King would say if he were still alive and being able to see this unfold. And for the years while um, uh, my wife was pregnant, I was just, I was pouring over his teachings and his readings and his, his, uh, his writings and his speeches and everything else. And was just so enthralled, and it just, Dr. King was so part of my life. And I thought, ah, you know what? I'm going to give that name to my, to my boy. And so when I tell the story, I have to rem remind him that this is not an opportunity for you being called king to expect that people will come and kiss your ring or to bow down to you. But instead, the example would be to our, our dear brother, uh, Martin Luther, who actually was one that was out in the margins and did not hold a position so that he could be served, but that he would serve others. That he would intentionally give a voice to those that are on the margins. That he would care for people who had been mistreated. Even if people were hostile to him in the process. That we could, in a sense, live like the true king.
King Jesus. There's also something about the X-Men in there, but I'll share that for another time. We have an opportunity even uh, today, if you're in person, whether it's here in Oakville or at our other communities, where there's uh, compassion partners that are here, where there's ample opportunities of being able to to not put ourselves in a situation or, or position where we can be served, but where we can serve others. And there's something transformative that happens. Jesus is on to something. He's, he's, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to, to what greatness looks like, what, what leadership, what power looks like. I can remember when I was uh, young in ministry and uh, I was um, stacking up chairs. I was helping out another pastor uh, set up a room or take, take a room down and I was stacking some chairs and uh, he came to me, maybe he sensed uh, something in me, a little attitude or whatever while I was doing it, maybe begrudgingly a little bit. And he said, I didn't think I'd noticed at the time, but he was rebuking me in a way, a gentle way, a loving way. Those are the best ones, the ones you don't know that they're coming, but you're, it's happening. And he said, you know, that, you know that you're starting to cultivate the heart of a servant. You know that you're beginning to, to have a softened heart when you're treated like a servant and you don't get offended. If you can't say amen, you say ouch. <laughs> the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. If we jump to the very end of Jesus' life on earth, his ministry, his last night he spends with his disciples. And the disciples, they didn't know that this would be it, but Jesus knew he was coming to the end. And I know if I were in that situation, if you know it's it, I'm thinking like, okay, where, what's my bucket list? What are the things that I want to get done? Or, you know, I, it's like my birthday, right? Like I, I should be king for a day kind of thing. Like you take care of me. I want to be pampered. I want to be cared for. And Jesus, knowing that this is his last day on earth, he does something that just totally flips things on its head. Jesus takes his disciples and does the most servant-like thing you could ever imagine and scrubs their feet, cleans their feet, washes their feet in full display for everyone to see. Jesus uses his final hours to show what power looks like, what greatness looks like. The Son of Man came to seek and to save, to serve and not be served. And finally, uh, from Luke chapter 7, verse 34, which is a surprising one, but I absolutely love it. What did Jesus do? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Most of Jesus' life, most of his ministry was eating and drinking. The theologian uh, Robert Karras once said that Jesus was either on his way to a meal, was at a meal, or was leaving from a meal. (laughs) His ministry revolved so much around the dinner table, around food, around breaking bread, around sharing a meal. In Luke's gospel, there's nearly a dozen instances of Jesus sitting at table 
and talking and ministering to people. This is what Jesus did. And the beautiful thing about, about Jesus is that he eats with everyone, everyone. Prostitutes, tax collectors, the poor, the rich, Pharisees, even women he shares table with them. It's amazing to me. And in that context, the, the, the table was a sacred kind of place where it showed status, it showed class, it showed all of these, these different pieces and was an opportunity for division to take place. I sit here, you sit there. And Jesus, throughout his whole ministry, these three years, eating and drinking was pivotal. I think there's something really, really significant that he's trying to teach us. The table is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter the culture that you come from, anywhere on earth, to sit at a table and to share a meal is one of the best ways that you can connect with another person. Now, uh, years ago, as you know, I, I spent some time, I spent a number of years working in uh, detention facilities with, uh, with young people. And, uh, and I stumbled upon this, this truth kind of by accident. I'd showed up and I uh, hadn't eaten before I came in and was actually quite hungry. And uh, they were offering lunch. And I did get a couple looks, sideways looks from some of the staff because this is not something that you typically do. But I was hungry and there was food there. And so I sat down and I shared a meal with a couple of young men. And what ended up happening in that moment and in the many, many moments after that, because I realized there's something beautiful that happens where, where sharing a meal, sharing a bit of drink with somebody has an amazing way of unmasking your humanity, where you can see somebody for who they are. And I wonder how, how many of us Yes, we can, we can do amazing, great things and, and, and hand out a, a sandwich to somebody, but what is it to say, come with me and eat with me and drink with me and hear your story? Jesus was onto something. He knew the power of connection. He knew the power of sharing a meal where our humanity gets revealed. Author Michael Frost describes the table as the very best symbol of the Christian gathering. Even more than an altar, more than a stage or a sanctuary or a theater or a pulpit or a screen, it's the table. The table is the place where there is hospitality, where there is inclusivity, where there's generosity, there's gratitude and there's grace. The son of man, the savior of all nations, the one who comes riding on the clouds with the host of heavenly angels comes eating and drinking. Going back to the last evening with his followers after Jesus washes the feet of his followers and, her, and his friends, he gives one last symbolic gesture. He takes, he thanks, he breaks, and he gives. 
and instructs his people that when you meet, when you eat, and when you drink, do it in remembrance of me. Imagine if every time we take a bite or we take a sip, it's reminding us that whenever we're doing it, we're actually having communion with one another and with Jesus himself. What did Jesus do? It's a good question. He did seeking, serving, and eating. Simple things. Simple gestures of an all-powerful king showing what it is to live. And these aren't small gestures or God lowering himself in a way, but actually showing us how these things work. He's rescuing the regular. He's bringing divinity to our dinner table. Every time that we sup, we have an opportunity to experience that. So we can ask the question, what did Jesus do? It's a great, what did Jesus do? It's a good question, but I think it falls a little bit short. We can say, uh, well, what would Jesus do? Remember there were the bracelets a while ago. I didn't have one. What would Jesus do? We ask ourselves. It's another good question, but I think it falls short as well. But instead, what is Jesus doing through me? What is he doing through us? He's making the ordinary extraordinary. Simple things, inviting him to be with us. We'll make this as practical as possible as we uh, finish up this morning. A a dear friend of mine uh, who's no longer with us, uh, wasn't a person of means, had very little, and um, was living in a a small uh, bachelor pad and was on a list uh, to get accepted into a, um, an apartment that was a little bit bigger. And, um, and as he was getting ready, he got accepted and he was getting ready to move and transfer. And it was amazing uh, having conversations with him and the excitement that he had for his new place. He'd have, his own, he'd have a full bedroom to himself. But the thing that he was most excited about when he shared was not about the bedroom or the space or the balcony that we would, he would have or the new location, the thing that he was most excited about was him being able to be hospitable and open his home. Small little apartment. Quincy, do you think you could find me a, a big table that can seat 10 people or 16 people? I said, brother, I don't think that will fit in your front door, but we can do maybe start with four. But just a heart. He was on to it. He understood what greatness was like, what, what greatness was about and wanting to serve and to love in that way. So the the challenge, the practical piece is, take your phone and look at your calendar, see what you've got coming up, if it's this week or sometime, and be hospitable. Be like your Savior and your Lord Jesus, if that's who you profess to be your Lord and eat and drink. That you may be able to begin to apprehend and have Jesus revealed in your life and in the lives of others. Let's pray. Finally, brothers, sisters, family, rejoice. 
aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.